Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So this is supposed to be a new dawn for cycling. As lockdown loosens, we're being urged away from crowded trains and buses to the freedom of two wheels and the open roads. On this edition, Orla Shenwe explains the thinking behind her controversial ruler column arguing against wearing helmets and why the lack of a tour this summer has inspired her to poetry. Phil White, formerly of Cervelo, now with Four Eyes, sells the benefits of the affordable power meter, and Stuart Clapp prepares to enter the haunted woods. This is Ruler Conversations, part of the Ruler podcast, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. When Orla Shenwi wrote about wearing helmets in Ruler 20.3, she may not have been entirely ready for the response her column generated. Some of it, it has to be said, from people who didn't appear to have actually read it. There's nothing like helmets, though, to get people riled up. Helmets is very safe territory uh, when it comes to the general public and cyclists. So I thought, yeah, I'll just take a little easy topic for <laughs> my monthly column. Um no, but the reason I wanted to talk about helmets was because um, I moved to Amsterdam 18 months ago and here it struck me as it strikes pr- pretty much everyone who comes to somewhere like here or Copenhagen, the lack of people wearing helmets. And yet it is a, a incredibly strong cycling culture. And when you look into the stats, there are fewer accidents and fatalities per 100 people cycling than in the cities where helmets are more common so like London or Dublin or um, here in Utrecht for example uh, have lower accident rates. Coming from London where I had lived for over a decade and where it felt like there's absolutely no way I would get on a bike without wearing a helmet it was a difficult thing for me to get my head around when I came here and I thought you know I really had to question whether I was going to wear a helmet or not. And so it's that whole questioning process, I guess, that formed the the um, the basis of the of the article. And a lot of thought has gone into why I don't wear a helmet here whenever I'm just commuting around the city and and taking my kids around the place because I cycle every single day, uh, several times a day. I don't have a car; I only use my bike, and I don't wear a helmet whenever I'm uh, on a mama bike or on the family bike. Um, and I just wanted to explain why that was and challenge people's perceptions a little bit, really. And is it because you don't in some way sort of want to upset the uh, cycling culture that that exists uh, and to be the only person who is wearing a helmet or one of the very few people who are wearing helmets? 
Yeah, the reason I don't wear a helmet when I'm cycling around town on my mama bike or on my family bike is because there is a culture here of cycling that works incredibly well. And it's a culture where people look after each other, where we're aware of our vulnerabilities and we take that into account. And so not wearing a helmet exposes those vulnerabilities and it also makes you see the person on the bike for what they are. You know, we call we call people on bikes cyclists. They're not a cyclist necessarily. They're just a mum riding a bike or a dad riding a bike or a teenager or a kid or a granny, whatever it might be. It's just a person getting around on a bicycle. And I think sometimes if you wear a helmet, it can take away that individuality and it, see, it, it allows us to see it in a tribal sense. And so what I thought is I don't want to be just even that one person who contributes to changing a cycling culture that works so incredibly well and what what also works well about it is that it's seen as easy it's seen as just a simple practical logical way to get around the city no fuss no stress no hassle you just jump on your bike and off you go and that encourages people to get in their bikes the more we make it the responsibility of the cyclists to not get knocked over so the more we say you've got to be visible you've got to wear a helmet you've got to wear high vis here's a wonderful light I've seen lights that you put onto the back of bikes that act as indicators before you turn left or right as if somehow that's all going to stop someone from knocking you off your bike what it does is it makes people incredibly aware of the dangers of riding their bikes and that makes them less likely to get on their bikes if you create a society whereby everyone is aware of the dangers and the vulnerabilities it means that we're more likely to get on our bikes and you know recently we've had once a week in the UK people clapping for carers rightly so but but if we could encourage people to get on their bikes that would be a much better way to help the NHS because it means that we're physically and mentally much much fitter and the other thing I would say about bicycles is that or about helmets rather is whenever um as is often the case I, I I'll post a picture on social media of me not wearing a helmet um on my mama bike or my family bike and I will always get comments saying wear a helmet please wear a helmet I would just urge people to to see the helmet debate for what it is a bit of a side issue use that that care that you have and I appreciate that people care use that energy the passion if it is a passion and direct it towards actually changing things make the roads safer in the Netherlands the law changed in the 70s because a group of parents in Amsterdam fought to get the roads back they were sick and tired of cars knocking over children and they wanted to reclaim the streets for the children and so they campaigned and they protested and it worked they changed the law so the law in the Netherlands is that the um, the law protects the most vulnerable road user you've got to prove if you've been in an accident if you're in a car with a with a bike you you are assumed to be responsible driving the car if you're in a if you're a bike and a pedestrian you're assumed to be responsible if you're the cyclist so it protects the most vulnerable and then the infrastructure came after that um, I would just urge people to use that energy to divert away from helmets for now. We'll worry about helmets when it's safe enough for people to get on their bikes. Use that energy to campaign for change, to make the law uh, better, to protect everybody on the roads so that we share the space and then to, to change the infrastructure because it can change. I'm so sick of people saying, oh, we've gone too far down the road. We haven't. We haven't. It can change. From a British perspective, the laws and the infrastructure have to change first in some ways. Yeah. I think that's much more important than the helmet debate. And I wish that would become the focus. And I understand why helmets are 
the issue because it's a much easier, much more visible and uh, much easier to change factor when it comes to cycling. And it's also an easy way for people to say, well, that's how you make yourself safe by wearing a helmet. Of course, it makes you safer, but it's not going to protect you. You don't have you don't have a body armor around you. The, the most important thing is changing the law, first and foremost. I mean, when we talk about roads not being made for um, cyclists, you know, so so there isn't enough room for cars and bikes. I live in the canal quarter of central Amsterdam. It's the very heart of Amsterdam. I travel every day on uh, 15th century cobbled streets, which were not made for cars. They weren't made for bicycles. They were made for horse and cart. So they haven't changed the roads here to make it so that there's enough room for cars and for bikes. There isn't enough room. So the cars give way to the bikes. That's just the way the law works. And it means that more people get around in their bikes. So everybody moves quicker. There's less congestion. Everybody's less frustrated. And I would say as well that once you encourage, once you can manage to get that kind of a culture, it makes for a much happier living. And that might sound a little idealistic, but it's genuinely not. When I moved here 18 months ago, I was I was overwhelmed by just how outward facing this city is because everybody is outside constantly. No one's hidden behind the windows of a car, you know, the, the metal frame of a car. You don't have that space to, to work up and get angry by yourself. You know, if you get angry in the street, everybody hears you because you're on your bike. Um, it makes people wave to each other in the street. You get to know people much quicker. And like I say, it sounds almost idealistic and, and archaic, but it's, it's a city that works incredibly well. And it's a system that works incredibly well where it's adopted across the world. But I do think the first thing has to be changing the law and campaigning to change the law. I guess if it's going to change at any point, uh, now is one of the best opportunities to do that uh, with the uh, with the recent lockdown which is still very much in in force in the UK at the moment absolutely this is the time to change the culture and this is not about stopping people from driving it is just about trying to get more people who drive onto their bikes as well and so many people across the UK have learned over the last couple of months the joy again of getting on your bike and how lovely it is to get your to ride your bike and because it's safer more people are on their bikes and I've seen some things from haulier associations in the UK for example saying that it'd be terrible for lorry drivers well you know, the Dutch don't seem to struggle with exporting all the foodstuffs that they export all around the world. And um, the Danes don't seem to struggle with their lorries. You know, you, you can find a way to marry the two. And, and if you take some of the drivers off the road and onto bikes, there's more space for the lorries anyway. The other thing I would say is that um, what's, what would be really helpful is if we change the conversation around it all. So now that we are getting more people onto bikes in the UK that maybe haven't been doing before, we can maybe start to see that that it's not a case, it's not a, a, a demarcated line between drivers and cyclists. It's just people. It's just how you choose to get around. And if you choose to get around in your bike one day, that doesn't mean that you're some sort of a lycra warrior. It just means you're on two wheels. Same if you're a driver. If you've been riding as well as driving, you'll be more aware of the dangers for um, for cyclists. But this is the time right now because the politicians are ready as well, you know, 
there is a political will to make the UK more cycling friendly and now is the time to capitalise on it and I would urge people to use this time to campaign their politicians if you don't do it now there may not be another opportunity as good as this in our lifetimes. Now on slightly less uh, controversial uh, grounds have you had the chance to look at the um, schedule for men's and women's racing for the rest of this year and uh, next season? (laughs) I've had a cursory look at it Ian Uh, the reason being it's so overwhelming that um, it's almost impossible to get your head around uh, just how much we're trying to get into such a short space of time but yeah I don't think anyone can can not have had a quick browse and, and dream about what could be come come August. Yeah for the first time it now sort of is starting to feel a little bit like you might actually get Tour de France, you might actually get some of the classics this year, the way things are, seem to be going on mainland Europe. It is looking like we will get some of them. I think my suspicion is that the calendar that's been released is more of a roadmap rather than a, a realistic reflection of what we're going to see. I would be surprised if we get if we got Strada Bianca at the start of August. That still feels too soon, but um, I don't know these things. Um But I would be surprised if we had all of this racing to come because even if it was behind closed doors, it just necessitates such a lot of movement of people that I can't really see it being practical and safe to to have the calendar as is planned. However, I applaud the UCI for planning it because we need that, you know, and I think the riders certainly need that in terms of aiming towards something. I would imagine we'll get a tour de france won't we i would think that would be in some form or another probably yeah whether it starts at the end of august though again i don't know if that feels a little bit early but i'd imagine all of those moving parts are going to keep moving over the next couple of months but you would think at the very least we'll get a tour de france in a world championships and maybe another couple of weeks of grand touring and a few a few classics in there which you know at this stage would be quite welcome wouldn't it if we only got that of the year i think a lot of people would still be quite happy yeah better than we were expecting and the women's paris roubaix that's what we're supposed to get um yeah incredibly exciting um and just so surprisingly out of the blue there was just no indication that that was going to happen I was reading a piece with the Bowles riders, um, Anna van der Breggen. Uh, I think they had done some sort of a recon over the, the cobbles in the Arenberg as part of a pitch to try to convince uh, the organisers to put one on. And she said she was, she was actually quite shocked by how bad the cobbles were. I think it's going to take an, uh, quite a few recons from the riders. But, you know, it's going to be so exciting because it's, it's a different type of race. It's a different type of racing. Sure, we've got cobbles but we don't have the cobbles of Pyro Bay and it it will be something completely unexpected I don't think the riders the teams will quite know what to make of all of it but um it's it's wonderful it's wonderful as a fan to look forward to that I can't wait and the good thing is if it doesn't happen this year we know what's going to happen now you know they can't say oh we were going to put it on in the squished calendar but now we've got space we're not going to bother with it in 2021 Uh, so it's wonderful that it's that it's here for now at least and in ruler 20.4 the edition that's out at the moment um, you've actually written a poem about the Tour de France. What inspired that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have. I'm a bit embarrassed about it, Ian, because poems, unless you're an actual uh, poet, um, you tend to write them as a teenager, don't you? And then, then you put them to bed and you think, oh, well, that was quite embarrassing. I'm, I'm a bit rubbish at that. Um, but I thought I'd give it a go again. Um, because we are you know, supposed to be looking forward to the Tour de France right now, and we're not. And it got me thinking about all the things that I missed about the Tour de France and all the things. I thought, you know, what is July without the Tour? 
and that was going to be the, the nature of my column. And as I started to write it, I couldn't help but be a little bit more romantic in my my reminiscence, really. And it sort of it sort of just was was veering towards a more poetic style of writing. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go all in and I'll just write it as a poem. I have to say for anyone, you know, any fans of Shakespeare or it's not iambic pentameter. We're not talking about a classic poem here, nor is it a limerick. It's not that every line is rhyming. It's more a um, a, a loose form of poem. I mean, it's all I wrote it um, as a spoken poem. So it's meant to be read aloud. So maybe that'll help if you don't really get it. Maybe if you read it out loud, if it's not too crazy a thing to do, um, it might make a little bit more sense. But um, I really enjoyed writing it, actually. I really enjoyed being able to pay tribute to the Tour de France in a different way. I felt like it's sort of, um, it's wor- if any race is worthy of a poetic tribute, surely it's the Tour de France. Yeah, or the Giro, I guess. But yeah, the July is going to be, uh, July is going to be strange, isn't it? It's going to be so strange, you know, because the Giro, at least when we didn't have it, we had um, a lot of alternatives. You know, I think people were doing their own alternative Giros with podcasts and whatnot and on Eurosport with the tour, because we're all expecting the tour to happen anyway. I feel like it's going to just be quite empty. And, And it just in our lifetimes, there's never not been a Tour de France in July. You know, we've never had a summer that hasn't had the television on in the background and the whir of helicopters and the beautiful hay bales and and just the rolling peloton and all the things that are the wallpaper to our summer that even when you're not paying attention until the last 50 kilometers it's just company for the whole time you know I mean I remember whenever with my daughter whenever she was born five years ago and I I was only out at the Tour de France for um, the start a bit of the middle and the end so I was at home for the rest of it and because I was a a new mum I was exhausted a lot of the time and I remember um, it was a 20 it was a 2015 tour which was just thrilling me and my husband used to put the tour on every day it would coincide with her nap we would then have a little nap on the sofa because it was our chance to catch up on sleep. And then, you know, the rhythm of the commentators as, as it gets closer to the climax would wake all three of us up at the same time. And we'd be, you know, on high alert watching the end of the race. And I just, I just love that it's part of the rhythm of your life for the summer. And it's going to be really sad that it's not. It's wonderful that it, that it should still come in some form. But you can't help but feel it'll be ever so slightly diminished by not having that pride of place in the in the height of the summer holidays, really. Thanks, Orla. Um, pleasure to speak to you. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh, keep riding your bike. Thanks, Ian. I will. Take care. Orla Shenwi and her column on helmet wearing is available online. If you want to read her brilliant poem, you'll have to subscribe to the magazine, which would be a good thing to do anyway. £7 a month to support some great cycling journalism. Phil White is one of cycling's innovative thinkers. With Cervelo and Vrooman White design, he changed the way we think about bike frames and aerodynamics. Now he's heading up the sports electronics company Four Eyes, who are doing well in the current crisis with their range of turbo trainers and power meters. And he's planning the future of integrated electronics in cycling. You know, after Jared and I sold uh, Cervelo to Pawn, um, then I, I took on the role of innovation officer uh, for the Pond bike brands. And, um, you know, in, in that, just that, that was the time that, you know, e-bikes were starting to kick off. Like even before we sold, Jordan and I had had discussions about, you know, how we saw an e-bike fitting into the line and what we saw as the future of, uh, you know, of electronics and of, of bikes. Um, 
so, but you know, in the, in the years since then, it's just completely accelerated. And, you know, now there's no discussion that, uh, you know, an e-bike is part of, uh, or can be part of a performance brand's line, but also the, the discussion was, okay, so how do electronics fit into this? And, um, you know, everyone's now got a, a you know, a, some sort of head unit that they've plunked in front of them on their, on their system. They've now got a power measuring facility, whether it's in the crank, like on four eyes or the hub or something else. And then, you know, I, I was riding with a couple of friends last year and we counted one guy's number of electronic pieces on his bike, things that had batteries. And there were like seven or nine. And it's like, and it's just, and I, I know the same thing on my, uh, on my city bike. It's like, there's always one of them that's not charged. You get halfway home and either the taillight goes out or, you know, you get halfway home and the headlight goes out. It's really frustrating. We're obviously using more and more electronics. They make the whole ride experience better, but there's no one that's really kind of thought about, you know, what's the future of electronics on bikes. I mean, it's going to be, in my opinion, and, uh, and the four eyes guys, you know, they, they have that same opinion. It's like, it's going to be something more integrated. You know, the power meter is not a standalone item. It's how is the whole system integrated on your bike and how does it make the whole ride experience uh, better? Because you can argue that all these things kind of slapped onto a bike. It looks kind of like a, the first generation of the car, which was basically a, you know, a, a carriage without the horse slapping on some lights and some other things like that. And uh, it looks pretty different from the integrated way that we have everything today, you know, all right off one system. How would um, integrated bikes look in the future then? And, and how far are we away from something very different? Well, I think, you know, you're seeing um, this move towards integration on, on e-bikes first. You know, you just because you've got a big battery there and you can, you know, power more things with it. But even then, it's, I don't think you're really seeing it to the extent that it, uh, that it should be. You know, on sport performance bikes, we've got a new challenge or a different challenge in that uh, things are less powered. But, uh, you know, you've got no power to deal with. Like you've got, you, don't have a, you don't have a big monster battery on there that you can just, you know, ch- you know take power out of, you know, without any sort of penalties. That's a challenge I think that we have, but there's a lot of, you know, the data and, you know, like everyone's constant concern on, on a bike is how do I make sure I don't lose it? Well, you know, there's ways we can do that, but a lot of them, you know, to, to date have always been, well, how do I deal with the power, you know? And um, so we've, we flipped over a little bit from the technical, like everything is technically feasible, but what's meaningful to the customer and we have to figure that out. And then there's still technical challenges on, you know, a, a sport performance bike where you don't have a big battery. So like in the, uh, like a GPS uh, chipset is both expensive and very power hungry. Uh, and the same thing with a cellular. So it's like, how do we solve those problems? Because it makes it an expensive addition to the bike, but also takes a lot of power. That doesn't work really on a, on a sport performance bike. So I think sport performance has more challenges. And that's one thing that uh, the four eyes guys are are capable of doing. It's a tech. It's a bunch of tech guys that understand the tech at a very deep level, and we can make those parts themselves. We have two factories, one in Calgary and and one in Taiwan. So we're quite free, and we're you know we're not reliant on technology coming out of a, a Chinese factory um, and piggybacking on that. So that's what makes it interesting from my standpoint is we have the ability in house to pretty much design everything we want, and it's not just a tech company it's a it's a bunch of bike guys as well so it's a good match you're not trying to 
you know, you don't have a bunch of tech people saying, Hey, this is a great tech idea. And guys going, uh, this doesn't really work from a bike standpoint. It's like, that's not what I want. It's a, it's a very harmonious relationship. So at the moment, uh, Four Eyes are best known for small and relatively inexpensive power meters. They're well perceived as having the smallest power meter. Like it's only nine grams. So it's crazy light and small and super power efficient. They weren't really recognized for having the best power meter. And that's one thing that they've always focused on. I think done a very, I don't, I don't think we've done a very good job of, of just telling people how good our products are. You know, most of our competitors use a, a single strain gauge or, or at most a biaxial strain gauge. We use a triaxial, so it's three, all three directions of the strain. So you can really see what's happening and this, and it's like, okay, so does that make a big difference? It's like, actually, yeah, it does actually for some people, especially if you're standing up or if you're a real stomper, like our strain gauge is much more accurate than uh, the other people because it, it can pick out all those elements that they're missing in their, in their power units. Yeah, there's real differences, but the neat thing is uh, the company's always had this philosophy of the democratization of power. Everyone should have the benefits of it. And so they've typically been the least expensive in the market. So now it's, uh, we've got, I'm not sure what it is in UK pounds, but in, you know, it's basically $350 for um, our, our least expensive power meter. I mean, one question that remains for a lot of people, if you're not a pro, do you really need a power meter on your bike? You know, that's a, that's a good question because uh, I think what's happened over the last three months, four months, has really proved the value of that because, you know, you can make, if, if you don't have a smart trainer, and of course, those sold out in in minutes when COVID hit. How do you how do you deal with that on your own bike? Well, if you have a power meter, you can actually train pretty well and very smart with a with a power meter. So I think what we we found is like a huge bump in in demand for power meters, both for people and cycling inside. But then, okay, even people that have a smart trainer uh, and have been training inside for the last few months, um, now they go, hey. I need to get one of these uh, so I can actually train smart on when I'm training outdoors as well. So what we're seeing is a continual uh, demand as we head into a less lockdown in, uh, environment. And um, so, yeah, the demand seems to be continuing on power meters as we head into the summer months. And typically, most people buy their you know, equipment at this, you know, before the summer and, um, and have it all ready. But no, we're finding demand is continuing uh, all the way through. So yeah, it's a different game. So I think people are, everyone needs to, everyone likes the benefit of training smarter and the power meter offers that. And, um, as the prices come down and we've got less and less expensive, um, it's easier to do that. It's more accessible to everybody. This is Ruler Conversations brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lacquer. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have and I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment.
So, Rulers, Desire Editor Stuart Clapp, what have you been up to? I've been riding my bike and planning the next issue. Obviously, the magazine's just dropped today with like a bit of a new look Desire section with uh, all other bits and bobs going on in there. In fact, Benedict shot this one while we're in lockdown with his kids. So it was, uh, I had very little to do with this. I'm very happy that they can manage without me. But you're already planning for the next one. I am indeed. They, there's never... Well, the, the thing, we do eight issues a year, but obviously as soon as one, one, when the magazine drops, that's usually when I'm kind of on the deadline for the next issue. So this one, we're going into the woods. We're going to do a bit of a, a, a gravelly type theme, mainly because, um, you know, gravel's very popular at the moment. It certainly is with me and my mates. And which woods is it you're, uh, you're, you're doing it in? Yeah, well, there's a bit of a story about this because... When we had this idea a little while ago, because we haven't done gravel for a little while and, you know, it is, is quite cool. We thought, well, we want to do something on these all road stuff. So we've done stuff by the sea. We've done stuff with spitfires and racing cars and all this stuff. We've never really done the woods. And the woods, obviously, are quite picturesque, aren't they? And there's plenty of stuff for Benedict to hang bikes off in the woods, branches of trees. So I said, oh, I've got an idea. I know a wood near my sister's house sister lives in this converted chapel she lives like next to this lane and uh yeah anyway right so i went out in, in i'll come back to that in a minute right so i went off in, into the woods and i thought what I, what I tend to do if if it's a location near me or something like that or or a location anywhere else i'll i'll pick some pictures and send them over to ian cleverly and benedict i went over the woods i took my camera with me and i set up a couple of shots put my bike up you know next to you know where they they go like the the woodcutters what are they called lumberjacks lumberjacks that's right yeah oh that's that was after yeah i don't know do they call them lumberjacks or is that only in canada tree surgeons yeah tree surgeons yeah that's right uh so tree manager um so yeah we've we've so they've been like chopping up bits of wood you know the, the wood that you see and it's got about 47 adders underneath right so they got those and i put my bike up lent it across and there's something about being in the woods anyway that I find a little bit creepy. But I think that's because I'm a child of the 80s and I grew up watching Watcher in the Woods, uh, which still scares me to, like, to this day. With a girl when she gets drowned and there's like ghosts, it still it freaks me out now even thinking about it. In fact, I might watch it, see if it's still scary. Chances are it's probably not. Yeah, so I went in there and I thought, I'm going to come out of this bit because I thought, I don't know... You know, I, you know, it's all right when you're moving, but if you stop, it feels a bit weird. So anyway, I carried on and I thought, oh, I'll carry on this lane north. Right. And, the, and it took me straight off. There's a road that cuts off the, off the middle now, but it's the lane that runs down the side of my sister's house into the woods opposite. And my sister, before all this was going on, my sister called me a couple of weeks ago and was like, guess what? heard horses down the lane again last night. So there's loads of weird stuff that happens in this lane. And um, I was just talking to Sean Hardy about it. And he said, there's a place near him where he takes pictures. And every time he takes pictures, there's like weird blurry bits in it and stuff like that. And, uh, but they, yeah, for years, there's been like weird sounds, sightings and stuff like that. But in the field next to the lane, um, they grow magic mushrooms over there. So I don't know whether the two things are related. So speaking of gravel bikes, there's actually a chance to win a really uh, lovely looking 3T gravel bike, isn't there, on the uh, Rulo website? There is indeed. And we've got one coming in for the shoot. They're quite rare. They're not, they're not everywhere. I spoke to Saddleback, who 
distribute 3T about getting a bike for the shoot. And they went, oh, no, we haven't got one yet. So, um, but this is coming directly from 3T. So, uh, yeah, no, no pressure. Maybe we won't hang that too high uh up a tree um but yeah i'm looking forward to seeing that and obviously winning it would be quite nice as well maybe i could think of a pseudonym to enter under it does look really nice doesn't it it does yeah i love the pastel colors they've used it's, it's really funny because like they, they like genderize colors quite a lot on bikes right and and it's like oh i really love that colorway oh that's the women's one and it's like i i really love like i love it when a brand will do like cool stuff with colors and not just like shrink it pink it that's for the ladies or like you know the blokes is matte black and manly uh but yeah the, the pastel thing looks amazing i really love it and it looks such a cool bike well thanks Stuart. um if you want a chance to win go to the ruler website and you subscribe to the 3t and ruler newsletters and you get a chance to win a 3t edition exploro even the name is nice even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 